0: In this podcast, we're using Zoom technology and don't have access to the high-tech mics. So I'll ask our listeners to bear with the tin can that they hear us echoing in. Welcome to episode 16 of the Foreign American Becoming Better Global Citizens, where we introduce topics designed to help us think outside the bubble of the United States and enter into a conversation with the rest of the world. We are educators attempting to break free of the cocoon that keeps us from knowing, loving, and listening to our global neighbors. And my name is Scott Besnecker. For the past 30 years, I've been helping to lead students in the beautiful and broken places around the world.
1: And my name is Eric Seberg. Honored to be here with Scott. Um, I've been on staff with InterVarsity as well since the 90s, and I'm currently a part-time staff worker with Native Ministries.
2: Hello, my name is Cortland Hopkins. Um, I'm uh, Cichangu Lakota. Um, I've been on staff the last uh, five years here in InterVarsity, and I'm the
0: staff worker for Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Well, in this episode, we're gonna be talking about indigenous or First Nations peoples. And often that discussion revolves around First Nations peoples in North America. And I wanna expand that discussion. How do we understand indigenous peoples globally and how is our relationship in the US uh, similar or not? How are uh, First Nations peoples in Mm -hmm. North America similar or not to the rest of the world? And it'd be great to think about how we can be more aware, more connected to people whose ancestral lands we buy and sell and build upon. So first, it'd be great to hear from uh, the three of us in regard to our stories. How do our stories connect with indigenous populations?
1: I never realized when I was young that I even had an indigenous story. but uh, when I was uh, a young man, and 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 over the years as I became middle aged, uh, a new story began to emerge in our family, and it had to do with a people group that's in the north of Scandinavia called the Sami people. Uh, they herd reindeer, and they. Um, they're one of these groups of people that make the indigenous story interesting because they kind of break out of the box that we often have for indigenous nations because they're actually a european based people group but they also have their own language they they're very close to the land Uh, they're very close to the to uh, reindeer herding and fishing and working in the forests, and they have a story of living in the midst of a majority, much more Germanic, Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish uh, pop uh, countries, and also Russia, I should add. And and their journey is very similar to native North Americans. Now this story was not well known to me until I was an adult. But my father, who is an artist, always pursued this this identity he painted dozens and dozens of paintings of these people he had lost his actual original parents where the sami connection came from when he was very young like uh, 11 12 years old and um and so it was always something close to him but but growing up i just thought it was just another type of swede swedish person but in turn in, in actual fact it was not it was it was a completely separate identity
0: And Eric, this discovery's kind of launched you into uh, intimacy with a lot of indigenous peoples globally. You've been to a few global gatherings of indigenous people.
1: Yeah, it, it, uh, you know, there was a very meaningful meeting that I had between um, uh, some rising indigenous uh, leaders at my first Urbana conference, actually. And that was Urbana 2000 and I met Um, Richard Twiss, and I met Terry LeBlanc, Richard is is, uh, Lakota, like Cortland, and and Terry is Mi'kmaq from Canada, and they, we struck up a conversation, and I mentioned in passing that I was Sami in heritage, and they immediately, their faces lit up, and they said, oh, we know the Sami people, they're our brothers and sisters. They come to the world gathering of indigenous people that we hold every two years. Uh, By the way, would you like to come? (laughs) They invited me to the world gathering in Hawaii. And I met two Sami people at that gathering. And that gathering led to the next one, which was in Scandinavia in my home territory. I mean, literally 50 miles from where my grandparents had emigrated from. And the rest is history. Well,
2: how about you, Cortland? I think one of the things that I knew that I was very aware of growing up was that I wasn't like everybody else in the sense, I mean, I was, but there was a sense of very, a very strong connected sense of otherness. And not necessarily otherness in a bad sense, but otherness as in, that's not necessarily my story. Um, growing up, I was always very interested in history, you know, and, and you know, in, you're in America, you tend to learn American history. And I was always very conscious that, you know, that is part of, I guess, the history that I'm around. But that doesn't necessarily apply to me. So, um, And this is actually, it's a little bit funny mentioning that because the context of where I grew up. And I grew up mostly on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, which, um, you know, was, was kind of famous for its own reasons. Um, but I was also a member of um, the Lakota Sioux. Um, Sioux is the antiquated term, the antiquated, you know, exonym. Um, describing, you know, the, the foreign name, and Lakota is what we call ourselves. But I would have to say that growing up, that one of the most things that I was always known is that we are Lakota, <laughs> that I am Lakota. You know, there was never any sort of, I, I guess, like ethnic dysphoria. I never thought like, oh, I'm white, but, or that. It was always like very much, I'm a Lakota person, and that means something. And that always, and that, that always mm-hmm. flavored the way that I viewed the world. Um, so I would always tend to think about things in that way. I would always tend to relate to the world in that way as like I'm a Lakota person. So I was always imagining, um, like I would always watch Star Trek and I would always wonder, what would it be like to, if I was on there, you know, as a Lakota person? I never imagined myself as anything else. I always imagined myself as Lakota. And Lakota, we have um, quite a unique relationship with, with, I would have to say, the rest of the world. You know, we're kind of the famous Indians, the famous North American Indians, perhaps the most famous, um, probably because of um, you know General Custer and Anheuser Bush, um, um, the Anheuser Bush, because um, there was a lot of uh, paintings of Little Bighorn that the, uh, the Budweiser factory produced and sent to every bar in the country. So that actually has led to a lot of you know kind of some of the stereotypes, but ultimately led to a lot of our notoriety. So. Um, I was at when we were actually at the Urbana Missions Conference this uh, last December, uh, me and a friend of mine went to go visit the Anheuser-Busch brewery in St. Louis. Um, And I thought that was just kind of, that was an enjoyable experience because there was a kind of a meta narrative that was connecting me there as well.
1: Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Mm. And that narrative is maybe shared uh, globally, depending on what you're thinking about with regard to that narrative. My own story is less connected. Dad talks about a great-grandmother that he recalls smoking a corncob pipe and uh, saying that she was Cherokee. And I have no way of knowing, and he has no way of knowing. Um, but it may be one of those stories where there is some native connection that gets, that story doesn't get told. in that generation, of course, that would have been suppressed and uh you know the the cherokee or whatever foods or stories would have been pushed aside and the swedish grandpa or whatever that would be the story and those would be the foods because we don't want to talk about uh cherokee grandma so i wouldn't be surprised but um i have no idea and and since You know, in the last few years, I've gotten to know some of the Ho-Chunk people here in Madison, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. and did an interview with um, a Ho-Chunk leader who runs the local casino and and had a very fascinating discussion about the relationship between Native communities and casinos. Totally changed my perspective on uh, casinos and gambling, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the interconnectedness of stories for indigenous peoples globally. And one of the sad storylines that seems to ring true amongst Aboriginal Australians and Maori in New Zealand and Native North Americans, um, and possibly Sami, I don't know their story as well, is... Cultural genocide. That is the dominant group wanting to erase the history and culture and language of mm-hmm. the, those peoples. What do you guys know or what have been your experiences with regard to cultural genocide?
2: I think that is a, a somewhat universal experience. Um, I think that's something that, you know, probably a lot of people have commented on is when you have, quote unquote, the other versus like kind of the majority. Is that um, you know minorities you know lead to trouble you know and since a lot of these places I think were colonized by Europeans I think Europeans had a very in great knowledge that you know a, a small group of people with a cultural um, identity of their own are dangerous to um, the the larger whole the larger body politic so I think that's kind of why it's a universal experience and not necessarily even limited to Europeans. Um, This could also be in Asian uh, cultures. I know that there's um, an indigenous group like uh, the Hmong, you know, in uh, Vietnam, you know, who are essentially indigenous, you know, native people, but uh, have found themselves kind of, you know, pushed aside by, you know, um, larger religious and ethnic um, groupings. Um, So so that's the point of view right there. But the story why in my own personal family is that this is uh, one of the reasons I can't speak my tribal language is. This is what my grandmother told her children. Is um, and this is what she told her siblings um, when they're growing up. Is she said, the the kids who speak Indian don't make it. The ones who the, the ones who don't you know, the ones who speak Indian don't make it. And I want my children to make it. So she was a fluent speaker, and she deliberately withheld teaching all of us the language because she wanted her children to survive and to thrive in this country. So that's kind of a very personal and very intimate sort of take on that is, is that, you know, i you know, you know, we, we talk, we talk about all the sociology that we want, but I think really it comes down to that is that my grandmother elected not to tell us um, and not to teach us the language because she wanted us to make it.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Cortland. Um, they're both internal and external forces that contributed to the diminishment of the native culture, native language, um, often sort of playing off of one another, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I was uh, interacting with a Ho-Chunk woman who talked about the boarding school experience, and that's been sort of universally described negatively as a um, way in which European immigrants to the North America, um, tried to wipe out native culture. But her reflection was actually the boarding school was where uh, Ho-Chunk girls met Ho-Chunk boys and got married and to some extent were not assimilated by having an integrated uh, educational program. And while they did beat the language and the culture out of us, uh, at least ethnic intermarriage with within our ethnicity was somewhat kept alive in the boarding schools mm-hmm. as a sort of perverse um, side benefit to this forced um, you know experience of boarding schools. What, mm-hmm. what about the Sami?
1: well there there are a lot of s- stories of uh, cultural genocide, you could say, or, or, or appropriation in the Sami community. Uh, Last year, in the spring of 2017, I actually watched a film called Sami Blood, which is all about that story. It's a story of two Sami sisters, one who stays behind and lives the traditional way of life, and the other one who literally burns her past in order to get an education in a very racist Swedish uh, school system from the 1930s. And... Um, that film triggered me. I could not stop weeping at the mm. at the end of that film. It was so powerful, and it touched something in me that I suspect is a a buried story in my family 's past because when I look at the photos of all of my um Sami grandmother who I never met it 's always in traditional Swedish regalia, so to speak it 's not in the Sami gakti, the you know the 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 way the Sami people uh, very proudly these days uh, put on uh, their regalia. But I will say this: there are significant movements to restore those very things today. So, like last March, I was in at the Menominee Reservation with a whole delegation from Norway and Finland, who were trading knowledge about how to bring languages back back to life, because these were all pe- scholars who taught in a all-Sami university, where even the PhD programs were in the Sami language, and they were there with the Menominee, who are, have this tribal school that has grown considerably, and they have a vision for bringing back their language and bringing back their cultural practice, and it was absolutely fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. And- not to stereotype, but one thread I see in a lot of indigenous peoples is some kind of understanding connection to the land that Mm -hmm. in a modern society, and this isn't just amongst Europeans, but this modern disconnection with the earth or with the land, I see pretty regularly show up as a way that indigenous people share a kind of understanding and love of the connection to um, space and territory and land that's different than my relationship right. to the land.
1: Right. right.
2: I think the best way to describe that, the phrase that usually gets described most is a uh, sacred geography, that there actually is literal sacred spaces that exist. Um, I think that's a matter of um, belief, Um, you know, and that's something that's kind of out of fashion with the modern secular world, you know, um, a lot of descriptions between, you know, luminoid and luminoid space, um, you know, the purely internal space of the sacred versus the external space. Um, so I kind of feel like one thing that natives really do have is that sense is that this place literally is sacred, that something happened here, that something important happened here. Um, and it should be remembered, you know, and one thing that I notice is that um, natives have a very uh, good understanding of this. Um, it's always funny doing Bible studies with my students, especially in the stories in the Old Testament and in Genesis, is that no one ever asked me the questions about, oh yeah, then Jacob erected stones, you know, at Gilgal, and then it became, you know, you know, a sacred space and a place where people would visit afterwards. It's like, I feel like if I was teaching that with, you know, majority culture students, whoever those might be, you know, they wouldn't understand that. But with Native students, they say, oh, yeah, that's just what you do. (laughs) It makes sense. You know, that's what their tribe does. Their tribe does that. Their tribe marks where that happened. And I know that a lot of tribes do that in very different ways. And in the Southwest, here, a lot of tribes will make uh, petroglyphs. You know, they'll make drawings in the rock. that say this clan passed here or this clan was born here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I always see those, I always like feel a very calm and very sacred feeling inside of me as like, even though it's not my own sacred story, this is part of someone else's sacred space. And I always make sure to make sure to try to respect that. And I think an understanding of space like that really, I think really helps, um, cultures understand each other because like, what is, what do they view as sacred space? What do, um, you know, and what do we view as sacred space? And I think one of the most confusing disconnects in our time is that for um, the most of the Western world is that all sacred spaces become internal, you know, individualism and like right there. And I think, I feel like that's very hard to digest and very hard to understand.
0: Yeah. There's uh, uh, an epistemology, a way of knowing things that feels very different in indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. I know with uh, native North Americans, uh, and this may be true in other, other places. You know, European modernists tend to look at data and things that can be repeated in order to how do we know something's true? Well, you ought to be able to repeat the experiment or repeat the thing. And here, here are the ways that you know truth. And in indigenous cultures, or at least with some Native American tribes, It's like, well, dreams also tell you what's true, and animals, and the earth, and data points, and like there's maybe a a wider or more robust um, set of inputs Mm. that help to define what do we know to be true and real, and you need to be able to listen to the earth, and animals, and your dreams, and data points that you know modernists might like all of those things matter and you know you listen to one another and i just i think that way of understanding the world way of understanding truth is just fascinating and i was at a conference where a native speaker um, was talking about jesus as a tribal boy a uh, tribal man,
1: lion and, of the tribe of Judah. Yeah,
0: like here's someone who understands me and understands indigenous ways, mm-hmm. because he considered himself part of a family of tribes mm-hmm. of which he's one, in one tribe, and the way of understanding truth and the way of speaking truth through story. Like this is something very much uh, that resonates right. with me as a native
1: North American. This fellow was saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much the same way with the Sámi people. I mean, when I was there in 2005 for the world gathering of indigenous people, we had communion on top of a sacred mountain and uh, we were there with, there were 12 of us tribal people from all over the world. And I felt very intimately connected with that place. Cause the weird thing was I had been there like a couple of decades earlier when I was in my twenties. And I didn't understand the experience at the time, but I felt a real strong deja vu experience when I was there, like I'd been there before. I was connected in some way. And mm-hmm. then I ended up on top of that mountain.
0: <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I was listening to Cortland uh, speak about his understanding of the present Yeah, includes like... Great grandparents and great grandchildren from him, like you go back several generations. Seven and, generations, and that is the present mm-hmm. for him. And so you're sort of echo of there's something in my present which I consider beyond my individual lifetime, absolutely, to be part okay. of the equation here. That I'm feeling something.
1: Yeah, and you know the way we're talking about this is really no different than how the prophets of Israel talked about the land and about. Their connection to it. Surely.
2: Sure. Yeah, very much so. I feel that in some ways, a lot of like more of the prophetic literature makes a lot more sense when you view it in a native sense. I always joke with my yeah. students, it's kind of a joke, but it's also serious. That That's a very native way of looking at it is that, you know, is that in some ways, um, you know, the, the, the Bible is very much tribal. Absolutely. You know, the Bible is tribal. And I think um, one of the things that comes up very understanding is you look at Jesus's life, discussing that lecture. He does a lot of things that I would completely understand. Like, you know, he has to go to the temple for ceremony, you know, the ceremonies that are necessary for boyhood and for manhood and the like right there. And elders who've been waiting for him, uh, bless him and, you know, help and give him names. Um, you know, I'm thinking about Anna and uh, Simeon, you know, those are very, very, I mean, I feel like a lot of people wouldn't understand that if they're just used to the way we modernly live, you know, the world of advertising and internet and constant speed with it's like, oh yeah, you know, old man, an old woman, you know, they had to come and, you know, they had to bless him and they had to tell him what he would be about, you know, and one of the names, you know, it's like, you know, is that they give him as like, he'll be a sign that will be spoken against. It's like, that's a very native sort of thing to say. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then other people are like, oh, I don't get it. It's like, no, you have to be, when you're Native, it makes sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Indigenous people's relationships with those around them, uh, the immigrant communities that have moved into their territory. Uh, There have been a wave of modern apologies beginning in 91. Canadian uh, Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs issued an apology, and then there's a cascade. You know, U.S. Congress in '93 uh, for the sort of occupation of Hawaii mm-hmm. became um, you know an, an apology, and then in the later '90s, Norway and Sweden kings offering their apologies, and um, you know New Zealand and Australia. There there been a spate of apologies as far as i know nothing's really come with reparations or any kind of you know we've not granted hawaii sovereignty uh there's been attempts to say we we at least see and recognize that there was a sin committed here and that we were part of it and some of the indigenous folk feeling like yep yeah, that's good to say it kind of falls short of any kind of restitution, but. I'm wondering what you all have experienced in terms of relationship with non-Native folk, or Eric, in your case with Swedish folk that you had you know, felt assimilated to, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. what you know of Sami and non-Sami relations, and, and then Cortland, what you've seen or experienced in terms of Native North Americans and their relationship with, uh, those who now occupy North America?
1: Well, there seems to be a worldwide uh, conflict between the what I would call the indigenous understanding of the sacredness of creation and the objectives of our sort of modern capitalistic economic system. I mean, it's one thing to symbolically apologize, but it's another thing to then on the other hand, you know, continue to give mining rights to big multinational corporations in the north of Scandinavia, in the middle of traditional reindeer herding areas, to run a pipeline through a reservation in in the Dakotas, in North Dakota, to, um, you know, do the same thing in Canada right now where they're having a huge conflict in British Columbia. I mean, there's all of this flash and I really feel that uh, indigenous people feel a real kinship you know because of the communication that we have nowadays the internet and and uh, the te- technology they're they are connecting one another because they are uh, feeling like they have a common uh, threat to their way of life uh-huh.
0: so there, it sort of rings hollow to say. We recognize that your ancestral lands were taken from you, but we still think that we own them and are going to use them as we exactly. as we like. Exactly. It's like, well, that wasn't really an apology, was
1: it? Yeah. <laughs> and the mindset that comes with that kind of exploitation—the whole idea of just thinking of of creation as just a lot of dead manner, matter that we can can um, do what we want with—is so different. Mm-hmm. I mean. My friend Wayne Valieri, who's an Ojibwe uh, canoe builder up on uh, the Lac du Flambeau Res, I mean, he will go into the forest and ask permission to borrow the bark from the birch tree for the canoes that he builds. That's, that's his frame of, of mind. That's his relationship with, the, with creation. That's not a relationship that is promoted in the capitalist economy.
2: When we think about apologies, it really is about worldviews because if you're actually sorry about something, you do something about it. You know, it's like there's some sort of, you know, something's given back. Something is, you know, um, something is rectified. Something is fixed. Eric, you mentioned um, Canada. Um, you mentioned Canada. And I thought that Canada is a really funny case because um, if you're here in the United States, I remember when everyone was going gaga over Trudeau. And I was being a little bit more around the block and being a lot more well read than a lot of people. I says, wait until the rubber hits the road, because when it comes between him and the oil, Trudeau will pick oil. And people said, no, I don't believe you. He's, he's a, he's a, a white Canadian on our side. And then when they started pushing through that pipeline through again, people were freaking out. And I basically, I had to say, I told you guys and they say, and I was like, Oh gosh, I hate being right all the time. Um, and it feels like that flavors a lot of those relationships when it comes to um you know apologies right there is that um you know is is that oftentimes is that these modes of living and these philosophical ideas aren't necessarily in our best interest um you know, and it's hard because like in some ways it's it's not necessarily negotiating oh we're 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 we're, we're enemies now we're friends, it's much more of like it's almost like two different concepts of civilization that are at in conflict. And we're just trying to figure out how that works. I, I'm very optimistic. I'm a very idealistic person. I think that that can be, but I think that these apologies just kind of, you know, it's, it's a lot of solving, you know, it's a lot of solving for the liberal conscience, hmm. you know, um, like we're apologizing, you know, it's like, um it reminds me a lot of the famous British liberal, you know, the Muslim who was like, oh, damn, the empire, but they still enjoy all the cheap products and all that, you know. So it's kind of, for me, it's not necessarily a cynical point of view, but I think it's very much been flavored by realism and what I've grown up
0: experiencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine what it might feel like for me to move into my neighbor's house and move all my stuff in and they're like what are you doing well i've created a new deed to this property and i'm the owner <laughs> and if i had uh you know the madison metropolitan zoning folk who recognize my deed, i see uh, this is my place and years later come to think well actually it was their place and i moved in and i just said i'm sorry without either moving out or trying to figure out how do we now share this space, it could feel like, uh, yeah, you s- say you did wrong to sort of move in and take over my house, but that apology means nothing if there's not gonna be any kind of you know recognition, like maybe you could pay me for the house or something to sort of mm-hmm. show that this, you really do think that something went wrong here. And I suppose some of that may come from the modernist uh, and European form of individualism where we separate ourselves from our ancestors and from our history like well I didn't do that so like why should I have to pay for what some right. white folk did you know 300 years ago yeah. that's not fair right 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 well it's, it's
2: interesting because I mean you
0: know it's like
2: I always run into people like that and it The concern, you know, the emotion very much is, is like, how is this my fault? And for me, I'm just kind of like, you're the descendants of those people. You know, it is your fault. It's your responsibility. You've inherited the responsibility. But I grew up with that sort of thinking. I'm not inclined toward that individual, that individualist sort of thinking in some way that it feels like that actually drives people crazy. As a tribal person, I kind of think it's like, oh my gosh, you're all alone. You're declaring yourself. It's like there's nothing. I mean, it reminds me of a story, you know, Sitting Bull when uh, they brought him. You know, he famously resisted the government, and they brought him to the big cities in New York to be part of these Wild West shows. And I always love sharing the story because it shows you the difference of point of views. And all the people are like, "Hurrah, Sitting Bull! Look, look at our cities! Look at our..." Massive steam engines. Look at our ships that sail all around the world. You know, look at our mighty cannons, gunfire, and how many people. And apparently, according to the story, that Sitting Bull, after he got paid, he always asked for all of his money to be in silver coins. And he would always give it to all the homeless newsboys, the people who were like, uh, you know, orphans, and most, most of them orphans and just poor children who had to work to survive. And he basically said, very pointedly, is that, you know, there are no orphans in Lakota culture. There are no orphans in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, and he says, this tells me everything I need to know about you. Mm-hmm. So he didn't see the buildings. He didn't see the scientific glories, He didn't see the scientific marvels. I think the thing that marks industrial civilization, you know, even though I'm a very proud beneficiary of that, but is that it, one thing that marks our society is homeless children.
0: That's how we measure progress that's how we measure the the value mm-hmm. of our society, not in the technology that we create, but in how we treat the least
1: right right
2: right I mean I'm just kind of thinking is that you know i've always been drawn to i mean it reminds me of the last line of a Christmas carol you know where um, not the last line, but the line you know where um Shoot, um, you know the ghost of Christmas Present. You know Christmas was just a few, you know was just like a month, uh, a little bit ago. But um, how the ghost of Christmas Present throws the words back at Scrooge. You know, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And then you know the two children, the two children of Doom, at his feet are ignorance and want. And want is something to be afraid of, but ignorance is something that's far worse and will cause your destruction, as the ghost of Christmas Present so poignantly affirms. And I think that 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 feeds very much into the Lakota idea of being conscience, of seeing, of actually seeing, being focused. So much of our knowledge is related. Does that person actually see things? Does that person actually hear things?
1: I've really been shifting in my understanding of a lot of this historic trauma in recent years because, and you remember this, Cortland, from uh, Mark Charles, you know, he points out that a lot of white people are also victims of trauma, but it's the, it's the trauma of the oppressor. And I think that's really true. I think that um, a lot of people that come from European backgrounds are also traumatized, and they are just as much victimized by this sort of soul-deadening capitalist system that we live in, which tolerates things like widespread poverty and... Um, Inequality and, you know, even the meritocracy that runs it, I mean, is full of gated communities that are that separate themselves relationally from, you know, the the vast majority of people who are not benefiting from the system. So I right. think that I think in some ways, uh, native indigenous people are like prophets in the wilderness, really, because they're pointing out that this is damaging to the soul and spirit of every
2: nation. Hmm. Well, I think we're offering the way out too. you know, the one thing that's very unique, especially if you read Solzhenitsyn and, you know, um, and Chesterton, one thing he points out is that socialism and capitalism are essentially the same thing, which is that they both, the God desire, something Mm -hmm. to be in control of you, Mm -hmm. you not to be in control of you. And I feel like that's something that's not many people are willing to point out. You know, everybody wants to solve the problem, but no one ever thinks that, you know, are you, like, you has your neighbor eaten yet? Have you, you know, is your neighbor okay? Like, you know, is your neighbor actually your neighbor? Mm -hmm. These are things that I think where Native people really do offer the way out of.
0: Well, any final words of advice for um, listening well to one another in terms of building networks or relationships
1: or books, podcasts, people that we should be listening to? Well, it is interesting that this spring, you know, we're, I've been involved for many years now with the um, Nate's community, the North American Institute of Indigenous Theological Studies, and their next conference, uh, June of 2019, is going to be focusing on the land mm-hmm. and on the, our relationship with the land. And so that's exactly what we've been talking about at this um, podcast, because um, it's an enormously important topic, mm. you know. And I woke up this morning, actually, NPR was doing a, a show on just on the huge problem of trash in the Pacific Ocean, and, and they went to the, they actually went to the Philippines and were looking at wh- where it was coming from. And, you know, it was coming from very irresponsible companies who don't take responsibility for all the plastic packaging. <laughs> <laughs> they, they uh, dump on the indigenous people there. It's just like, it's it's a worldwide problem.
0: Hmm. So Eric's advice,
1: uh, think about the land
0: and listen to uh, indigenous thinkers with regard to how we relate to environment. How about you, Cortland? Things that would spell a turn toward healing of the ways in which cultural and sometimes physical genocide has happened with indigenous peoples.
2: Well, I think, yeah, like, um, I think uh, I love Eric's suggestion. Um, Anything by Nate's is usually pretty good and pretty challenging. But one thing that I also tell people is that it's important to know your own story. It's important to know where you come from and who the people you come from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I feel like that's a major step and I feel that's something that has broad reaching appeal. Um, No matter where you are on the political aisle or, you know, I would dare say, you know, whether how much you're in or versus how much you're out. Um, because I think when you have, when you know your story, you begin to regain control of it. Not, not in like an imperialistic way, not in an empire of yourself, but knowledge of yourself, I think, helps free you. So I think that a lot of people, you know, it's just like, I think it's okay to look back at your own cultural heritage and embrace it, but not embrace something like general or generic, you know, like, you know, white, for example. But to embrace, you know, who your people are, where did they come from? Why did they come to live in this valley? Why are you, why is your family here? And I feel like that's much helpful kind of like for folks who are on the majority end of the culture. I think it's also, I think it's also okay to embrace the immigration narrative as well. It's, it, I, I, it's okay to be an immigrant. I don't mind that, I, weirdly, I feel like that a lot of natives don't mind that people are here, but we want to be honored. You know, we've been shamed in this sense, you know, we've been dishonored. And I think that, you know, you should give honor to your story. It's like, why did your, why did your fathers, why did your grandfathers or grandmothers, you know, why did they decide to come here? And that, that story has meaning. And I'll gladly welcome anyone who says, you know, that it's like, I welcome you here. Um, and that's kind of how I feel like that's kind of how the story begins again, right there. You know, it's mm-hmm. very personal advice right there is, is that I need to know your story so that I could honor you and that you could be able to effectively honor me. Because mm-hmm. the one thing that we don't need more of is you know, white guilt. I mean, I, I, I don't need any more white women in scarves apologizing to me. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, I need action, but I need people's action. You know, it's, um, And I think people action is where, you know, people know who they are. And if they can see that, then already good steps are already taking place.
0: I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Eric. Thank you, Cortland. Appreciate your helping us think through the relationships that exist currently in the world around Indigenous peoples and to dream about a better future. I particularly appreciate Cortland thinking through the idea that we're meant to be in relationship with one another. It's not that we need to live in isolated enclaves. It's that we need to know our story, hear other stories, and honor one another appropriately. And that, yeah, uh, integration of cultures and peoples is not a bad thing, but let's, uh, let's do it well. So thank you both, and we'll look forward to another podcast another time.